No matter what happens in our life, we have the Lord. And he's called us to worship. He's called us to gather. He's called us to look into his word. That's what we're doing this morning. We're looking at Ephesians at the end here of the letter to the Ephesians. If you would, open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. And I want to bring part 2 of a passage we started last week on the armor of God. The armor of God. Standing firm in the whole armor of God. We must stand firm. That's our command here in Scripture. We cannot give way to the devil. We cannot give one inch. We must stand firm in our faith in Christ. Let's just start in verse 10 so you can get the run up here to the passage, the context. Ephesians 6.10 Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Well, every day we're in a spiritual battle. We're in a spiritual fight. Sometimes it's a hard fight. Sometimes the devil attacks us more so than other days. Yet we must fight the fight. We must be engaged in the battle. The Lord has commanded us to do that. The great preacher Charles Spurgeon said it like this, To be a Christian is to be a warrior. The good soldier of Jesus Christ must not expect to find ease in this world. It is a battlefield. Neither must he reckon upon the friendship of the world, for that would be enmity against God. His occupation is war. As he puts on piece by piece of the panoply provided for him, he may wisely say to himself, This warns me of danger. This prepares me for warfare. This prophesies opposition. We are under attack. If you are a Christian here today, you know that there's a battle going on. You might be a new Christian and not realize how serious it is, how bad the battle can sometimes be. But ultimately, the Lord uses it for good. Ultimately, the Lord strengthens us for the battle. And Paul is telling us here where we find strength. Where do you find strength when spiritual warfare comes? Where do you find it? Well, Paul's been telling us that there's pieces of armor. Armor that God has given us. Now that we're in Christ, now that we've been redeemed by the blood of Christ, and His resurrection has shown that there is a hope and a future for us, and we're fighting day to day in this life, God doesn't leave us alone. He doesn't say, I'll see you in heaven. Do your best. He gives us grace. He gives us strength every day. And Paul's reminding us in the letter to the Ephesians what that looks like, how that's lived out. He explained doctrine in the first three chapters. And these last three chapters, he's been telling us how to live it out. How do you grow in your holiness? One of the ways is winning this daily battle more and more and more throughout your life. And to do that, you've got to put on the armor of God. The armor that God gives you to defend against Satan. 
The goal is not to conquer Satan. That's Christ's job. He's already done that. He's dealt a death blow at the cross. And ultimately, he will chain Satan when he returns. And Satan will no longer have influence upon the world. But right now, we're not to go out and take cities. We're not exercising demons. We're not binding Satan. We are told to stand firm. You have enough to worry about on your own standing against the devil. Six pieces of armor, Paul says, that enables us to stand against Satan's strategies. And you've got to put on each and every piece. You can't say, I like these five, but not this one. Or I'm a little weak and that breastplate of righteousness. You know, it's really hard to live a holy, righteous life. So I think I'll give that one up for a while. Just focus on the others. Now you've got to put on the whole armor, Paul says, the full armor. Every piece is important. To review you from last week, we covered the first three pieces of armor. First of all was the belt of truth. The belt of truth. It protects us against false teaching and loose thinking. So a belt or a girdle in ancient times would pull things in tight. That's the first piece of armor you put on. You don't want to run and trip over your robe or your tunic. And so Paul says, put on the belt, which is the truth. And this is the truth of God's word. The whole truth. And nothing but God's truth. Gird yourself up in God's truth. Know God's truth. So when Satan tries to trick you, you know what the word says. The whole Bible. Theology. You know the Christian faith. The content of Christianity. And so your thinking is not loose. You don't pick up every false teacher's book that comes along on the bookshelf. You're not falling into the latest fads and the latest news in Christian circles. Your thinking is tight. You've prepared, you've girded up the loins of your mind, like Peter says. And Satan can't get in and mess with your thinking that way, with your doctrine, with your mindset. The second piece we looked at was the breastplate of righteousness. And this protects us from the devil's accusations. The devil's always accusing. He's always standing before God to accuse you of being a sinner. Think of the book of Job. God says Job is righteous. And yet, what does the devil do? He says, you know what? God, that's just because you've protected him. Give me another chance. He's going to sin. And in Revelation, it says he's always accusing the brethren. He's always accusing believers of sin. Yes, we've been saved from our sin. But that doesn't mean Satan has given up. He's going to continue to try and somehow prove to God, as if he could do that, he's going to somehow try to prove his case as a prosecutor, accusing us of sin. So putting on the breastplate of righteousness protects our hearts from believing these accusations. It means living a life of holiness, of godliness, because God has already planned, foreordained all the good works that you would do so that we might walk in them. We read that in Ephesians 2. Now we're to live that out. And the holier we get, the more we're less likely to fall into these traps of Satan accusing us. Yes, we'll stumble. Yes, we'll fall but we ought to work on living a godly life in the power of Christ. And then thirdly, the boots of the gospel of peace. Peace really is the key there. You get peace through the gospel message, through believing in Christ alone, having faith alone in Him, being justified by Christ's righteousness. The boots of the gospel of peace protect us against doubts that we have true peace with God. Even a person who's been regenerated, even a person who has a new heart, sometimes doubts if they have true peace with God. Does God hold that against me? Does God remember this sin? Certainly he remembers that really 
bad sin that I committed. I mean, that was, that was evil. That is Satan's talk. That is Satan uh, trying to get into your head. Yes, you should be convicted of your sins. And yes, you should confess them and repent of them and ask for forgiveness. But this is Satan putting doubts into our head. That God's always going to remember those sins. That even though you've been saved, there might just be this chance that you would lose that. Do you have peace with God? That's what Satan is trying to get us to think about. But if we put on the gospel of peace, if we remember what's in Scripture on this teaching, then we'll know that we can trust God through Christ, that we have perfect peace with Him. We don't worry about that. We focus on living a holy life because we put on the boots of the gospel of peace. Today we look at the next three in the list. Number four, shield of faith. Take up this shield of faith, he says. In addition to all, all these other armor pieces, we're to stand firm by taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. He spends more words talking about this piece of armor than any of the other pieces of armor. This is the shield which protects us from all the devil's temptation. Of course, the first three dealt with temptations in a sense. But this is just a catch-all shield that will protect against all that the devil will throw at us. All that Satan is scheming to do. Paul says, you've got to take up the shield of faith to protect against that. Pick it up. Use it. He's commanding us to do these things. Which means at times we can get lazy. At times we can take off the armor, set it down, forget it's there. Live in our flesh and our sin. Let the world sway us for a time. He says, take it up. Now the shield here that he has in mind, it's not a small buckler or round shield. It's not even the medieval shield that's sort of triangular shaped from medieval times. In Paul's day, the Roman soldier carried a very large shield. In fact, the Greek word for it is a door. It's it's like a small door. Two and a half feet wide, four feet high. So a large shield that you can get behind when you're fighting as a legionary, and it's three to four inches thick. Paul knew what this looked like. His readers knew what this kind of shield looked like. During battle, the Roman soldiers would lock these shields together, and they would form what's called a tortoise formation. In the front, surrounded by shields, in the side, and on the top, there was a layer of shields that the men would hold up, and no arrows could get through. In a phalanx type of formation, this was very hard to beat. That's why so many people had trouble fighting the Roman army. Well, in the Old Testament, God is protecting his people, and he's called a shield as well. Paul is just putting all these ideas together. The idea that they could look at a Roman shield and understand what it meant to be protected from arrows and darts and everything else. And that God is also a shield, and he gives us a shield. God told Abram, do not fear, I am a shield to you. David saying that, Yahweh is a shield to all who take refuge in him. So we're to take up the shield of God, which is faith. This means having firm and and resolute dependence. That's what faith is. A firm and resolute dependence on the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says, look, you're in Christ, and you've got to trust him every day with your life. Every day, no matter what happens. Full reliance and trust in God. It's not initial saving faith there he's talking about. 
the people he's writing to are already saved. He's reminding them that the Christian walk is one of daily faith. It's one of daily faith, and we could even add repentance as well. It means having unquestioning belief that does not require proof or evidence. It means that God doesn't owe us an answer every day for everything that happens because we trust Him. It means that we get up every day living for Him in the faith that He has granted us and we exercise that faith and we live it out for His glory. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 1 says that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. We know there is a God. We know there is the Son of God who came to die for us. We know that He's keeping us, and we know that He has a future for us in glory, and that we will have a resurrected body to spend forever and ever with Him. These are the things we recall to our mind as we're taking up, metaphorically speaking, taking up the shield of faith. We have to agree with what Charles Spurgeon again said, I have a great need for Christ. I have a great Christ for my need. We have a great need for Christ. And thankfully, God has given us a great Christ for that need. Another passage I've cited last week, 1 Peter 5, speaks of this attack from the devil and what we're to do. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He wants to devour you. He wants to consume you. And Peter says, resist him firm in your faith, in your daily faith in Christ Jesus. Being saved doesn't mean that you made a decision at some point in your life and just sort of forgot about that and went on. It doesn't mean you got baptized and then went on to live like the world. Or you checked a box. Or you said, I'm a Christian, and then lived how you wanted to. Being a Christian starts with living out your faith every day in the Christian life. So the shield of faith protects us against the flaming arrows of the evil one. And it would be bad enough to have normal arrows fired at us. But Paul chooses a greater, more expansive description of what's happening in the spiritual realm. The arrows of the evil one are flaming. They're on fire. They're even more deadly than a regular arrow. The shield of faith will protect us from those. And the Holy Spirit here has inspired Paul to use this type of language, deadly weapons of ancient warfare. Deadly weapons. A flaming arrow is a deadly weapon. Because even if the arrow doesn't hit you directly, it can now catch you on fire. Flaming arrows were one of the most frightening and deadly weapons in ancient warfare. They would take a, an arrow and they would hollow out the shaft and pour burning liquid down in there so that when it hit you, it broke and then splattered the liquid everywhere. They would also dip the arrow point in pitch and light it on fire as well. One historian said if a flaming arrow struck anywhere, it burned persistently and water poured upon it rouses the fire to still greater heat. And there's no way of extinguishing it except by sprinkling it with dust. These were deadly. Even if you had this huge shield, the arrow is going to hit. It's going to splatter the liquid everywhere, that will continue to burn the fire. You try to throw water on it, it doesn't work. You'd have to throw the shield down and put it in the dust to get the fire put out. Now you don't have your shield anymore. But the shield of faith, Paul says, will quench that. Uh, some English translations even say that they're not just flaming arrows, but fiery or flaming darts. Uh, because the Greek word here includes any type of missile. 
arrows, darts, spears, and javelins. Satan is launching everything he's got. His air force is coming at you as well. Livy, another Roman historian, described one of these flaming javelins in battle. He said it has a wooden shaft with an iron point wrapped in rags and then smeared with pitch. The iron head was three feet long and capable of penetrating armor and body alike. Even if it only stuck in the shield and did not reach the body, it was a most formidable weapon. For when it was discharged with the rags set on fire, the flame fanned to a fiercer heat by its passage through the air, and it forced the soldier to throw away his shield and left him defenseless against the sword thrust which followed. That's what Satan is doing. He's throwing everything he's got at you, and it's on fire. And if you're not careful, it's going to catch your whole body on fire. It's going to consume you. It's going to burn you up. This is the life of a believer. Satan and his demons constantly shooting their, their temptations at us. And if we don't have that shield of faith to extinguish those things, they're going to burn us up in sin. We're going to fall into that temptation. Did you notice though he says that this shield will extinguish all those flaming arrows? All of them. If you take up the shield of faith, if you're trusting in Christ daily, if you're living in what Christ has given you and done for you, then it'll extinguish everything. You see, in, in ancient times, they would put a leather face on the shield and then they would soak it with water. And that way, when the arrows hit, they would often fizzle out right away. So you have this huge shield to protect you. Even a flaming arrow coming at you would be fizzled out, would be extinguished by a shield sometimes. And the shield of faith, Paul says, will extinguish all, all the temptations that Satan throws. Immorality, hatred, envy, anger, covetousness, pride, doubt, despair, depression, distrust, fear, bitterness, pride. All of these. Vanity. Whatever he dangles in front of you. Whatever he's throwing at you. Selfishness. Unforgiveness. Division in the church. Take up your faith that God has given you. Take up the shield of faith. And use it. Which of these temptations is the devil constantly firing at you? Which of them is he constantly throwing at you every day? Maybe in some days of the week it's more intense. But he's got one or two that he really likes to throw at you. He knows you. And he's throwing this over and over at you. Don't sit back and just let him pierce you. Don't sit back and just... There's nothing I can do. You know, I'm just a sinner. Sometimes in the Christian life, we take that idea that we're not perfect. We take that idea that we still sin. And we run with it much further than any of the New Testament writers did. Well, Paul writes a lot about how you can change that. How you can grow out of that. How you can mature in the faith. How you can take up this armor and use it. You can use it. Don't sit back and just lay around as the devil is shooting you. Get up. Stand firm. Take up the shield. Next piece of armor is the helmet of salvation. Number five, the helmet of salvation. This protects against the attacks on our assurance of salvation. The Roman soldier wore a helmet. It was a complete metal helmet with padding inside. And it was polished, usually polished bronze. 
extended down the back of his neck and there were flaps that also would, would hinge here and protect the cheeks, protect the face. Uh, one historian writing about this said, nothing short of an axe or a hammer could pierce a heavy helmet. And Paul says, take up the helmet of salvation. Take up that thing that protects you from a head blow, from brain damage, from being taken out in battle by an attack right to the head. He's borrowing language here, Paul is, from Isaiah 59 that says there that God himself has a helmet of salvation. God has a helmet as he rides out in battle and he's given you a helmet likewise. He's provided it for you. It is salvation. The devil's always trying to tempt you and one of the major temptations is to make you think you're not a Christian. God gives us a helmet for a reason. Put it on. He's not saying here, go acquire your salvation. Make sure you take up your salvation. Make sure you go work for your salvation. No, he's saying you're already saved. If you're truly in Christ, you have been saved. You will be saved. And remember that. Remember your union with Christ. Remember that once you're connected to Him, there's no separating that. You can't divide the spiritual union we have with Christ. He wants to attack us. He wants to think, he wants us to think that we're not secure in our salvation. He wants you and I to question whether we're really rescued from God's wrath. The one where he's making us question our peace, that's one where the believer knows they're saved, but they doubt whether they have peace with God. And I know theologically that doesn't make sense, but sometimes as believers we don't always think as theologically as we can. So the devil tries to tempt us about our peace, but we know we're saved. This one, though, the helmet protects us from true questions that we have about assurance. Not because we're living a sinful life. If, if you're living in sin, you need to question your salvation. You need to ask yourself, am I in the Lord? You need to examine yourself before you take the Lord's Supper. Now, this is a believer who's truly saved, but still has doubts. There's no reason, really, for those doubts. There's no major sin lifestyle. But they wonder. They struggle. And Paul says, take up the helmet of salvation. Take it up. Put it on. Because the devil's saying things like, don't you know you can lose your salvation? Don't you know that, yeah, God gave it to you, but you can lose it? Don't you know that you don't have a specific date that you were converted like other people you know? Or you don't have this great testimony like the person who got saved last week from drugs and prostitution and all those things? You were saved so young, you don't remember it. How do you know if you're really a Christian? The devil says, you didn't pray the sinner's prayer like those other people you know. You didn't walk the aisle. How can you sin like that and call yourself a Christian, the devil says. He's always attacking you like this. He says, only a believer would fall back into that same sin over and over and over. Are you really a Christian? You're not. Well, if we believe those lies, they can be serious wounds to the Christian life. If you struggle with your assurance or think that for a time you're not saved, you're going to be more likely to sin. You're going to be more likely to do exactly what the devil wants you to do. And Paul says, put on that helmet of salvation so you don't receive a deadly blow. He's really already laid the foundation doctrinally for this. Go back to chapter 2 and look at verse 8. He's saying, apply what you learned earlier in this letter where I taught you about salvation and where it comes from. 
Ephesians 2.8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. Do we save ourselves? No. He tells us right here. And that, not of yourself. All this stuff, grace, salvation, faith, it's not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. If God gives a gift, he can't take it back. It's not as a result of works so that no one may boast. He's laid the doctrinal foundation. In other words, God gave it as a gift. God doesn't take his gifts back. And it's not based on whether you sin today or not. It's not. So don't believe the devil's lies. Yes, strive to not sin. Take up the breastplate of righteousness. But at the same time, when you do sin, don't think somehow God has cast you out. Don't think somehow that God has thrown you out of your future hope in heaven. Salvation, Paul says, even faith in Christ that brings about salvation is a gift from God. He won't take it back. And back in Ephesians 2, he says, you have been saved in the past. It's already done. It's a done deal. It's a done transaction. It happened in eternity past, he said in chapter 1. It was accomplished on the cross. It was applied to you in time when you were saved. Philippians 1, 6, he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Remember that passage when you take up the helmet here. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 8, he calls the helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, he says, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He's going to make you try to doubt. He's going to make you lose hope. Wonder if God truly keeps people secure in their salvation. Go back to Romans chapter 8. And uh, let's start in Romans 8.31. Who is this God? Is this a God that will separate us from the love of Christ? Well, Paul answers that here in Romans very clearly. Romans 8.31. What then shall we say to those things? If God is for us, who is against us? We have God. We have God through Christ Jesus, who can be against us? Skip to 37. But in all these things, the things he just listed, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. It doesn't matter what you're going through. It doesn't matter how bad things get. If you're truly in Christ, you can't be separated. If you're living a sinful lifestyle and you don't care what I'm really saying today and you're just here, then you ought to be thinking, I'm not assured of my salvation. And you're not. But if you're truly regenerate and you've shown good fruit and you've been living a Christian life and you still have these doubts, realize that's Satan tempting you. Put on the helmet of salvation. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will be snatched out of my hand. None of them will be snatched out of my hand. Satan will try to convince you otherwise. He'll try to say, yeah, that verse doesn't apply to you. Don't listen to it. Put on the helmet of salvation. You need to know that you're saved and then live accordingly. I like the way Steve Lawson said it. You must know that you know that you know that you are saved. No one can fight in spiritual warfare unless they know which side they're on. 
We will never be effective in resisting the devil unless we know for certain we are on the Lord's side. See, if you waffle back and forth as a Christian and you say, I don't know, I just don't know, you're spending all your time and energy with that. And you're not standing firm in the fight. So ask yourself today, which side am I on? Which side am I on? Am I on the Lord's side? Then take up the armor and put it on. And if you're not, then trust in Christ. Repent of your sin. Then he'll give you the armor that's his. Then he'll give you the armor of God. One of my favorite hymns, It Is Well With My Soul, goes like this. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and hath shed his own blood for my soul. Amen to that. Okay, the last piece of armor. We don't think of it as armor, but in ancient times they did. The sword of the Spirit. Number six, sword of the Spirit. And it's the word of God to fight off Satan. Paul says, take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. We don't even have to wonder what this is. We don't have to do a lot of study. It's the word of God. It's the Bible. It's the scripture. Take it up. Use it. He doesn't say, charge after Satan and run him into the pit. He says, use it to stand firm. Use it to stand firm. It's still defensive. The sword mentioned here is not a long, large, broad sword like we often think of that medieval knights in Europe would use. It's not the two-handed sword that the German barbarians used against Rome. This is a little short gladius, about two feet long. And they used it for precise thrusting. So the enemy's charging, you put up your shield, you throw your javelin, then they charge and hit your shield, and then you have this little sword that you can go around the shield and stick them with. Very precise. Gets under their armor, hits them in the body parts that would hurt them, that would kill them. Use that against the devil. Precise thrusting. They've not just been given God's defensive armor, but a sword to defend against close attacks. That's what Paul's saying. You've got a sword to defend you when the devil closes in. He's thrown everything he's got at you from a distance. Now he's coming in close for hand-to-hand combat. Now, the sword of the Spirit's not general knowledge of Scripture. I think that's the belt of truth. You've got to know the Bible all around. You've got to know the major doctrines of Scripture, the belt of truth. This is a precise thrusting instrument to pierce the enemy. Now, the term here in um, Greek is rhema. Normally, we see the term for God's word, the word, as logos. Sometimes it's used for rhema, which is, a term that slightly emphasizes speaking or bringing to mind. Not so much the written word, but bringing the written word to mind or speaking it. God's word is being preached often in the New Testament. It's the rhema. It's the same thing. It's not something different. We're not speaking of the the false doctrine called the rhema doctrine by charismatics and Pentecostals. They say the rhema is the voice of God coming through you as you prophesy. That's not what Paul's talking about. He's saying, take up what you already have. What do you already have? The Word of God, the sword of the Spirit. Take it up. How do we do this? We use specific verses of Scripture that we have memorized, that we have studied, that we have meditated on, and we use them to remind us of things, and they push off the devil. He leaves us alone for a while, 
Because we've dealt a precise thrust with that sword at him. No better place to look at than when Jesus did this very thing. Go to Matthew chapter 4. Uh, we see him use the sword of the Spirit here. And it's very clear to us what we're doing. If we take what Paul's saying in Ephesians 6 and we go back and apply it to what Jesus is doing. Matthew chapter 4. Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So God put him there. God sent him there through the power of the Spirit. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. So he's very weak. Weaker than you've probably ever been in your life. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. Oh, you're hungry, Jesus. Go ahead and make the stones bread. If you're the Son of God, prove it. Now, Satan knew he was the Son of God, but he was trying to get him to deny God's provision. That's the temptation. Jesus knew he had 40 days. He was put there by the Spirit. He, he was going to be strengthened at the end of 40 days. But Satan is trying to get him to not trust God to take care of you. What if God never feeds you? Go ahead and turn these stones into bread. But here's what Jesus did. Now, Jesus could have gave a, a great sermon, a theological dissertation. He didn't. He quotes a verse. It is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. When Satan comes in close, that's not time to get out your theology textbooks and sort of give a, a dissertation on roast pig. That's the time to recall that verse you memorized that will help you. That's the time to bring those verses up that you put into your mind, which you better be doing. Which is why it's so important for kids to do that. So they can get them in there early and keep them there. The next temptation, verse 5. Uh, then the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. And now Satan is getting a little bit more wily, a little bit more scheming. He says, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. You want to quote scripture, Satan says? I got a scripture for you. And he's trying to get Jesus to misinterpret the Bible here. This is a temptation to abuse God's power. Of course God has the power to save his son. That's not the point. Jesus is put in the wilderness to be tempted for a reason. And Satan is trying to have Jesus abuse God's power, misuse God's power, to, to force God's hand, to demand a miracle from the Father. And then he's got one more temptation. Let's look at how Jesus answers that. On the other hand, Jesus says, also in the Bible it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. A specific verse. He's got it memorized. He's ready. Verse 8, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said, all these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Now that's the temptation to escape God's plan. Jesus knew where he was going. He was going to the cross. He knew how hard it would be. He knew he was going to suffer the wrath of God for all those who would believe. He knew the pain that was coming. And Satan is saying, you know what? You can have the crown without the cross. I'll give you a crown over the whole world. You don't have to go through all of that. You don't have to suffer. What did Jesus do? First he says, go, Satan. He tells him, get out of here. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. 
Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and began to minister to him. How did he defend himself? Well, one of the tools we see being used here is a sword. He's a master swordsman. He's just citing scripture. He's the son of God. He's Jesus Christ, perfectly righteous, fully man, who always did everything the Father commanded him, and yet he still had to memorize and use scripture and his humanity to fight off Satan. He didn't say, Satan, wait a minute, I've got to go check Google to find a good verse. I've got to get out my Bible software and search for a while. He knew it. He had put them in his head when he was young, and he could use them. His humanity here is on display. That's the temptation. It's all about his humanity doing what the first Adam could not do. He made it through the temptation successfully. If our Lord and Savior, though, needed to memorize and quote Scripture, don't you think we do? If he lived a perfect life, and he still had to quote Scripture against Satan and his human flesh, don't you think we do? Maybe you're older and your memory's not as good as it used to be. You can still work at it. You're still here. You're still breathing. You can still work at it. The more you read sometimes, it's not always just sit down and look at a flashcard. Sometimes the more you read Scripture, the more it sticks in your head as well. We've got to imitate that great author of Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan. The whole time he's writing Pilgrim's Progress, the Scripture's just everywhere. And Spurgeon said about Bunyan, why, this man's a living Bible. You prick him anywhere and you'll find that his blood is bibline. The very essence of the Bible flows from him. He cannot speak without quoting a text, for his soul is full of the Word of God. Bunyan didn't just sit there and sort of just absorb Scripture in his mind. He had to read, he had to study, he had to work at it. God's Word is full of power. Use the sword of the Spirit when you're tempted, when Satan is coming in for a close battle, for hand-to-hand combat. Just uh, going through a few sins and temptations. Uh, what would you use? What kind of verse would you use? Immorality and lust. You could memorize that uh, Matthew 5.28, everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Struggle with lust? Memorize that verse. You struggle with despair? Psalm 42, why are you in despair, O my soul? Why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him for the help of his presence. If you're in despair, if you're feeling down, God says, why? Trust in me. You can memorize that verse to fight against the devil. Maybe you struggle with sinful anger. And you'll remember in Ephesians 4.26, be angry and yet do not sin, Paul says. It's okay to be angry over your sin or sin in the world or somebody else's sin. But there is a type of sinful anger, and that's most of the time when we get angry. And he says, don't sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. And do not give the devil an opportunity. You fester. You let it fester. You you have unforgiveness. You have anger. You're giving the devil a place to come in and use you, influence you. Maybe you struggle with fear. And there the sword of the Spirit would be, Do not fear, for I am with you. Isaiah 41.10 Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Maybe you struggle with greed and you want more and more and the devil's dangling that in front of you. And you recall Luke 12.15, Jesus' words, Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed. For not even when one has an abundance 
does his life consist of his possessions? Memorize verses. Get them ready. You can start using them right away. First of all, pick the sin category that is often a struggle you have the most with, the temptation, and then find verses on that and then memorize it. And then work on the next category as you go down through your sanctification. God's word is full of power. It's full of power. It comes forth from his mouth, he says, and it will not return void. It will have its effect. And one of those is to help us. God's word helps us. This passage has helped us grow in sanctification and how to fight the devil. And specifically, verses he's put in scripture that help us more often than other verses. So let's use them. God's word succeeds where all else fails. There's nothing that a drug or a counselor or all these different things that the world can throw at us. There's nothing they can do compared to God's word. They can do a little things here and there, but God's word is so powerful. Memorize the Bible. Use it. Take up and put on the full armor. All six pieces we've looked at in some detail. We've considered what they mean, how to use them. Take them up. You can't pick and choose a few pieces. Uh, you're a little weak in this one, so you don't want to use it. Memorizing the Bible sounds like too much work, so I don't want to use it. No, use it all. As a believer, you have to. You've got to. Otherwise, you're going to be taking hits from the devil all day, every day, struggling with sin, sinning because you're not doing what God has called us to do. So let's live for him. Let's take up his armor. Let's, let's use what he's provided for us to use. Amen? Can we say amen to that? Do you want to do that here? Yes, let's pray for that. Father, you are a merciful and mighty God. You did not leave us. You did not change our hearts and say that we are without help, we are without strength. No, we have strength. We have your strength. And that's all we need. We give up our own strength when we came to Christ. We took up our cross and we followed him daily, and we still do. So, Lord, help us to be reminded every day to take up these things, to remember the truth of your word, and to use it to our advantage for your glory, for our holiness. We know that we must rely on you, and we do every day. So, we pray that you would remind us and help us in time of need, as we know you will. In Christ's name, amen.